Lord, thank you for, our, uh, for, for your word. We pray that you would uh, guide and lead us this morning as we look into studying it and applying it and discovering what it is that you want us to do. Uh, just work in each one of our hearts. I pray that each of us would be students of your word, reading it faithfully, and that, uh, Lord, we would always be seeking you as we read it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one of the things the Bible says is that as we get towards the end days, the amount of uh, false teaching will increase, and it will increase exponentially. And so we're going to talk about that this morning in the sense of why and what we can do about it in the sense of our own life and walk and relationship with God to make sure we don't get led astray. It's termed doctrines of demons. Doctrines would be truth, and demons are always communicating, and they're trying to get things off just a skosh, and then a little bit more and a little bit more. Pretty soon we're believing some weird stuff. So, number 26, every writer of Scripture was on a timeline with all the other writers. And uh, one of the interesting quizzes you can give uh, up-and-coming Bible scholars is to give you a line with a bunch of authors and have you put them on there in order. And um, most can get generally pretty good. They recognize old and new. Sometimes don't quite get the minor prophets in the right order, and sometimes some of the writers in the New Testament. But uh, they all uh, wrote successfully, uh, in order. Yeah, there we go. Each individual writer knew what those who were before them wrote. And uh, so the... Matthew had knew the Old Testament well. And as you read the book of Matthew, you will see all kinds of quotes in it from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews has more quotes from the Old Testament than any other New Testament writer. And uh, so they knew the Old Testament. They read it uh, often and regularly. The writers of the New Testament periodically refer to one of the other writers, uh, one of the other apostles' writings. So when they wrote, it became... Uh, common information to everyone else. They also assumed that everyone who would read what they had written would be familiar with the message of previous writers of Scripture. So, you take a writer who's writing to, Paul writing to the church, he's going to assume that most of those that he's writing to know uh, the Bible. And so they will make that assumption as they write. And uh, they will refer to things that they assume that those who uh, are receiving it understand. Uh, so we need to read any writings understanding that they understood what was before them and that the, those who received what they wrote understood what went before them. So they won't go into detail about that. There would already be that foundation laid. And so we read that in light of that. That makes sense? Okay. I want some of this. I'm going to kind of cruise through if it looks like you all... Got it. It's pretty common sense. I mean, you would assume that, but sometimes we forget it, uh, that the Bible is written by different authors in a timeline. We, we just forget that, and we kind of read into it like it was all written at, the, at once by the same author. And the same author is the Holy Spirit, obviously, but still each writer has his understanding of history, of culture, what happened, and so we read it in light of that. Each writer had no clue about the information that had not yet been written, Modern readers of the Bible often forget that. So, Revelation was given uh, 
one step at a time, and so there's much that wasn't written uh, early that came late. And uh, one of the things that's sort of a, an assumption, I'm not sure why people make it, but that if Jesus didn't say it, it must not be true. There was a lot of information that was revealed by Paul, new revelation that was not revealed by Jesus, and that the people who lived during the time of Jesus didn't know. So next week, I'm going to have some verses, and what we're going to do is we're going to interpret them in light of some of the things we've learned here in the last couple of days. And there's a couple of passages that are really, really... uh, There's a whole bunch of hash made out of them. In other words, false teaching, because they just basically violate this principle. And once you apply it and say, okay, when's this written? So... Often it's interpreted this way, but how can it mean that when this, this information wasn't given yet? And um, So Matthew 24, you all familiar with that passage? That's where Jesus is getting ready to leave and the disciples ask him some questions about what's going to happen in the future. And so the whole chapter is some information about the future. And he will talk about uh, two people grinding and one gets left and one gets taken and two people in bed one gets taken one gets left Uh, what do we do with that passage we apply the rapture to it Uh, so why is that poor hermeneutics no information was given about the rapture yet Paul was the first writer to reveal that mystery So one of the truths that you get when you study the topic of the kingdom, and that was the question that begins with Matthew 24. They they said, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? So what they were asking is, are you going to be establishing your kingdom on the earth now? That's what they were all looking for, and they understood the book of Daniel and others written earlier about the kingdom. And so... Much is totally off the... There's so much weird stuff on the kingdom, it's not even funny. But uh, it's easy to figure it out, just read it in the Old Testament. So when they say, are, is it, are you restoring the kingdom at this time? You say, what were they asking? Well, just read the book of Daniel. And you'll see exactly what they were asking. Or the book of Ezekiel or Isaiah. They understood what was promised about the kingdom and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied to come to be the king. And uh, and so when Jesus gives the thing about one being left, one be taken, uh, we assume that the person being taken is the saved person. But when Jesus talks about establishing the kingdom, who gets taken? The bad guys get taken. Uh, when he comes and establishes his kingdom. So it's just a flip-flop of what the, the, uh, the rapture is about. But if you don't understand the kingdom and what they were asking, you just read it and say, oh, that's the rapture. I mean, what's that song that was written a number of years ago about uh, the rapture? It was, became quite well-known. It was clear back when, 40 years ago. Well, I wish we'd all been ready. And uh, the words out of that are right out of Matthew 24. It's a cool song, but it's a... 
kind of a misapplication of Bible in the sense of uh, they make an assumption. That's rapture. Well, rapture hadn't happened yet, been taught or revealed yet. So we're going to look at a passage next week from Acts chapter 4. And uh, it's there that Peter makes a a statement to the nation of Israel. I'll give you a a preview of it so you can think about it. And he basically says to the nation of Israel in Acts 4, if you all trust Jesus now as the Messiah, he will come back right now and establish his kingdom on the earth right now. Uh, Was that a legitimate offer? It was. But in God's foreknowledge, he knew that they wouldn't. They would reject him, which is good for us. Uh, A good news for us. Otherwise... We wouldn't be here. And, uh, but it was a legitimate offer. You, the nation of Israel, rejected your Messiah. Now, believe he was indeed the Messiah, and he will return right now, and the kingdom will be set up. So you read that passage in Acts 4 as you understand the kingdom and everything. You say, oh, yeah. But they didn't. And so then what we call the time of the Gentiles ushered in. And the church age. And Jesus makes room for that in Matthew 16. Uh, and that term is the word mystery. And he uses it um, eight times in Matthew 16. It's called the mystery form of the kingdom. It's the kingdom, but it's a parenthesis. You'll see it in the book of Daniel. And you'll see, you know, periodically it's a, a parenthesis. And so we'll look at all that. And 30, many people use the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible today. Don't do it. It's nonsense. I'm trying to be uh, uh, gracious in my use of words there. Nonsense is a much positive word than I would normally use. Okay, the allegorical method is where nothing really means what it says. It's got a... Uh, It's allegorical. In other words, uh, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. So when you watch the movie, let's see, some of the movies that are allegorical, that uh, they all slip my brain right now. What are some of them? Lord of the Rings. Some of those are written, they're allegories. In other words, it's a story, but it doesn't mean that really. It means this. And so you try to figure out what the real meaning is of the story. And uh, so the basic principle, and you'll hear people say this, I'll read the Bible and this is what it will mean for me. But it might mean something different for you. Now that kind of sounds cool. Uh, But the problem is, is you don't have truth. You simply have a whole lot of opinions and what it means to you as opposed to what it means to me. And so that method is very popular, and uh, it's growing in popularity. And from that method, you get all kinds of doctrines of demons, uh, things that are just a bit off but not true, because uh, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. Uh, I'll bring some stuff. Now, there's a book that came out a number of years ago that, the church all as a whole basically really glommered onto it. I thought it was uh, garbage. And what was that book? The Shack. The Shack. Mm-hmm. 
So was that uh, as allegory? Here's a story, and this means this, and this means this, and this means this, and, and the, the, you got an impression of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit from the characters in the thing. Now, the general message of, you know, people and how to treat people and, and the whole thing is great, but uh, it sold a principle all through the book. And the principle was uh, the principle of allegory uh, in, in communicating things. Now, if you want to communicate something in an allegorical way, without making doctrine out of it. But now there are people who say, well, this is what... They have a doctrinal statement in their head from that book. And so allegory is going to increase in use. And uh, it's how long has it been around? It was clear back when the church first started. There were authors that... Uh, hyped up the allegorical method. So it's been around since the very beginning. And uh, there's always been these debates with the early church fathers over interpreting Scripture. And so the allegorical method says, the Holy Spirit is the, is the author and he's the one who tells us what it means and therefore the allegorical method is the method we need to go by because that just allows for the Spirit of God to teach us and to lead us into all truth. The allegorical method says that the real meaning of what is written is hidden and obscure. And that we have to learn to read underneath the obvious to find the real message. So if you believe that to be true, there is really nothing that you can say, this is truth. Uh, because there's real no rules for the allegorical method. In other words, you read it, okay, that means this. This is referring to God. This is referring to the church. This is referring to Israel, whatever. And so from that, you can come up with all kinds of methods and teaching. Today, what prevalent teaching is that Israel is no longer uh, the God's chosen people. Uh, you come up with that method easy when you go switch over to the allegorical method. And so now, Israel means what? The church. How do you come up with that? Well, that's what it means. Who said? Whoever reads it. Uh, and so words that are common through Scripture, they change meaning, and you're reading underneath of what, uh, not the obvious. And so hermeneutics, as far as rules of interpretation and, and communication, really go out the window. And now it's just kind of whatever you seem to apply, what you think. Those who espouse the allegorical method would say that there can be several different interpretations. It can mean one thing for me and another for you. So one of the things I've discovered in discussing theology and doctrines with people, if an individual uh, is locked into this allegorical method, I don't talk to them for very long because... It's, it's an effort in futility. You don't have any basis for d discussing what's true um, and, and, and accurate because you, just, you don't apply any rules of hermeneutics. It's sort of whatever you think, whatever you like. And once they get locked into that, it's getting them out of that and saying, and that's not how it works, this is how it works. Uh, it's beating your head against the wall and... and uh, 
It's a discussion that goes no place. And so if you walk up to me and we start talking about some doctrinal talk, and I get the, uh, you know, and I find it, okay, I think they're locked into this method. I'll start a conversation about interpreting Scripture, but once I find out you're locked into that system, I'll probably start talking about fishing or hunting or something else because it becomes a discussion similar to about Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Once you're locked into a view, it's hard to get you out of it. Those who espouse the allegorical method will say that to deny this method is to quench the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in our lives and hearing God's voice. So this is an accusation that's thrown around a lot today. It's difficult to defend yourself from this one. And I get accused of this all the time. Uh, from people who listen to the radio program that read my blog and various things and send uh, emails, text messages. And there's only occasionally when they're real mean about it, but they're still fairly straightforward. Pastor D, uh, don't you think, they'll always preface it with that, because, like, I mean, it's obvious I don't. Don't you think uh, that the way you're teaching is quenching the Holy Spirit's leading and prompting in our lives. And so my response back is, no, I don't think that. Uh, And so then I explain basically uh, where I'm at, but it goes no place. But that accusation, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us into all truth. And once you start doing things in a uh, manner that's based on rules, then the Holy Spirit no longer can lead and uh, so I don't even get started on that one. It's just, you, there's no defense for it. You can't, um, so there's a lot of assumptions made about leading of the Holy Spirit that somebody came up with. They've now used it to define what is a spiritual person as opposed to somebody that's not. One of my pet peeves that I bring up regularly, and I just did it with leadership class, somebody somewhere along the line said, that the Spirit of God leads you into God's will for your life, which I believe that. And he really doesn't give you what you need to know until about five seconds before you need to know it. That you're just walking along, trusting, walking in the Spirit, and so not until the next step do you know what. And people will say that when I talk about goal setting. They'll, I mean, I'll always get that if I go to another place. Isn't goal setting sort of quenching the leading of the Holy Spirit? My response is, when did God plan everything? Before the foundation of the world. How long ago was that? Does God do anything impulsively as far as everything, history, whatever? God premeditates, predecides, preplans everything. That's the nature of his being God, his being sovereign. And he did it quite a few years before it actually happened. I'm created in his image and in his likeness. Why do we think all of a sudden that it's spiritual... God to lead me just before I need to know it. Where in the world did that come from? Why can't I be led by the Spirit five years before I make the decision? He decides that way. Anyway, that's a, I, I, I don't even want to get started on that one. <laughs> Many of the heretical false teachings going around today come from using the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. And so if I 
get involved in the discussion, it's you, you can't talk about this. You got a, this over here. That is, well, you're quenching the spirit. I'm not quenching the spirit. I'm reading the Bible. And the rule, any section of Scripture has one interpretation. One interpretation, many applications. Making application is impossible till you know the interpretation. And you use uh, logic. You use basic rules of communication. The writer who wrote was intending to communicate to people that were receiving it. And the, time, uh, the times that they wrote, there was a culture, there was a history, there was an understanding. And so they weren't writing uh, in a secret code. They were just writing like we would write, where they communicated the way we communicate. <clears throat> Carried to the extreme, just about anything can be declared to be true from the Bible using the allegorical method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's was really quite common. Uh, one of the reasons why I know several pastors who do not like home Bible studies uh, because of often some of the teaching that comes out of them until unless there's somebody that's leading it that has some sense of how to uh, interpret the Bible. And uh, I get one of the things that happens when I work with people, I, one of my rules that I say is uh, don't be a control freak. If people leave, just let them do. And so they're, hey, you can't do that. Some heresy will be taught. I said, you know, if you've been there at the church very long and have taught the same thing continuously, everybody in the church has heard it repeatedly, it's hard for that to happen. Uh, it may, but if it does, it always gets back to me. Uh, so-and-so is teaching this. Well, then it's a, a free lunch. I just call them, hey, you want to go out to lunch? You're buying. <laughs> We have a discussion. And, uh, but um, one of my little things I say often to somebody that's starting something new and if they're going to be teaching is I'm going to trust you. That you're never going to teach or do anything that would create division in the body of Christ here. And so that line really uh, is quite powerful in people thinking. They may not agree, but they're not going to teach it. Because they know what I'm saying and they know what I teach. And so, therefore, very few people would purposely teach something contrary to that. Sometimes they'll do it accidentally, but not on purpose. The most basic principle of the literal method is to discover what the writer of any given book was trying to communicate to his readers. What did he intend to say? So he asked the question, what did he know? Uh, What was the background? So one of the areas today that you hear me all the time making a correction on is it's a, the, the word uh, the kingdom. So the word is mostly translated, I would guess, by 80% of evangelical believers today as uh, simply God's control. So you ask people today, are we in the kingdom now? 
And 80% of Christian believers will say what? Yeah. We're in the kingdom now. So when you read about the kingdom in the Old Testament, it seems like that's fairly literal in the sense of we're on planet Earth. And they talk about uh, lions uh, and lambs together and, and uh, swords being hammered into plow. Oh, that's not literal. That just means this. Well, I, I've heard that 10,000 times. It's not really literal, all that prophecy in the Old, Old Testament. That means in the words, that's what's happening today. Really? You read the news today and you think that's what's happening? And you think things are getting better? Somewhere along the line, there's a little disconnect there. Uh, things are getting worse. And when it's going to get really bad, how's it going to get fixed? Jesus is coming back, literally. Yeah. And his kingdom will establish on the earth according to what's described in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and a whole bunch of other minor prophets, just the way they wrote it. So they're writing about a kingdom on the earth. And so when the disciples say to Jesus, is it at this time that you are establishing your kingdom? And Jesus basically said, no, not yet. Not yet. So we're not living in the kingdom today, spiritual or otherwise. And uh, the kingdom was a literal reigning of Jesus on the earth, not an allegory of, of whatever. But that's, uh, again, that's, the average individual really doesn't think about the term kingdom. Now, there is a general term of kingdom, but it's fairly easy to tell the difference between that and the literal kingdom if you look at the context and who's writing, etc. Trying to discover the intent of the author is called exegesis. What was the author trying to communicate to those he was writing to? And you consider the, uh, the culture, you consider the context, uh, you consider where the people lived, everything, and you arrive at that conclusion by hermeneutics, basic rules of interpreting communication. One of the dangers of interpreting the Bible, even for those who say they are using the literal method, is to practice eisegesis. Eisegesis is where you read a text with your mind made up and you project into the text what your opinion is. So some of that is information that you were taught uh, as you grew up and then as you, because you've got it locked into your brain, you read it into everything that you read. Uh, so it's a good thing to approach Scripture with a learner's mind. Say that again. One would be that Eve ate an apple. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't say apple, no. Yeah, I always say that it's a, 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 if I, people that don't really know things, they'll say it was a pineapple. <laughs> and then uh, I had one individual just argue up and down. Pineapples grow on trees. Really? <laughs> Have you ever seen a pineapple on a tree? Well, no, but I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of one. Yeah, maybe. Okay, well, oh, you can go from there to tomatoes or whatever. But yeah, some fruit on a tree, whatever it was. 
I don't know where Apple came from, who was the first one to do that, but a lot of, uh, yeah, people that don't read the Bible much ask them, what was it that Eve ate and didn't, what kind of fruit? Wasn't it an apple? No, it was an orange. <laughs> so, yeah, we get this uh, information in our head and then we read that into the text. So, I had some significant theological adjustments take place last year in my life. Why? Okay, I memorized the book of Hebrews. Now, when you memorize 13 chapters, you've got to go over it and over it and over it and over it. And then I read the book every day, and I read about eight commentaries on the book of Hebrews. And so all of a sudden, there was just things jumping off the page at me because I was going over and over and over. And I thought, huh. And uh, so we won't call them major things, but there was some significant adjustments because of the volume of times that that book came into my head. Now, if I had been locked into what I had learned all my life, uh, it would have just gotten right by me. And probably it would have just from a single reading of it, but because I went over it and over and over it so much, it just kind of, whoa, it kind of wore me out. I think maybe this is true, which means this might not be true. So we have this open mind, not opened in the sense of, but as, as far as our study goes, maybe I want to exegete the passes, not read into it what i already been taught and already believe about my particular doctrine. It's a little tricky sometimes knowing our own mind and, and heart. It's like that old thing about paradigms. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw those, some of those things about paradigms. We believe certain things to be true, and even when it's obvious it isn't, we don't see it because our brain has been wired a certain way. Eisegesis is reading into the text our own presuppositions and assumptions. So one of the things that people will read into the text is this thing with uh, replacement theology where uh, Israel is no longer the people of God. The church has taken over that role. If you've been taught that, you will see that uh, because it's locked into your head. And, uh, and there's, it's, you know, very, very common today in most evangelical circles is that uh, we don't need to support the nation of Israel. They're, God's done with them. Uh, that's, you know, that's their presupposition as they read the Bible, and so that's what they're going to see because that is the presupposition that they have. And then there's other, get into talk, talks about uh, prophecy. Well, they may have this presupposition uh, that the millennial kingdom is not literal. And in fact, we're living in the kingdom now. So once you get that locked into your head, and there's a number of major denominations, that's what they teach. <clears throat> so it's, uh, you have to ask the question, are some of the things that I've been taught, are they true as I read the Bible? Staying true to the text requires a great deal of honesty, openness, and a teachable spirit. How many more numbers do we have in your notes? 44 total. Okay, we'll get her. The Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the church and for our individual lives. There are no addendums. We have the Bible. It's all we need. It's there. We don't need anything else added to it. No additional books, no additional commentaries, 
No additional revelations needed. It's there. There is no book of Mormon or any other literature or message that is an addendum or addition to the Bible. Now, the problem today, where is it that we get this additional information? Huh? Say it again. Internet. Uh, so, these individuals that give it to us, where do they get it? Okay, we've got these uh, prophets running around today that have these revelations from God and they declare them to be true. And so it gets added to uh, the, the Bible. A major source of extra-biblical information today is from individuals who have a word from the Lord, a vision, or a dream and declare it to be authoritative to others. That's getting to be increasingly um, more prevalent and because of the Internet, it can be... And you got so many people today, if you read it on the Internet, it must be true. Uh, when, in fact, the opposite is probably true. If you read it on the Internet, it's probably garbage. The Holy Spirit will lead me, but He's not going to give me information to give to you. in the way of leading decision-making. Uh, once it gets into, into the area of doctrine or truth, then we better be fairly that it isn't from demons because they're constantly communicating to us stuff that's just a bit off. So if you want to know what's true, read the Bible. Now, we are led by God. Am I supposed to be a pastor or a dairy farmer? Now, there's nothing in the Bible that tells me that but I want to know what God's will is for my life. And he will lead me. But I'm not going to come up with something and I'm going to say, hey, this is the way you're supposed to do things. But that's what's happening. People speak with authority for others. Do you believe that there are, can still be prophecies about future events? No. Authoritative means that they teach or communicate their new revelation to others as truth on how to live and what to do. So there's lots of prophecies that come out, especially Jesus is coming back, blah, 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 kind of stuff. And so I know what I study and read out of the Bible, and I uh, stay close to God and try to sense his will for my life. at the point at which they would define who Jesus is, what he did. And so uh, when you look at uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, and say what is it at bottom line that is required. And once you hear um, you have to worship on Saturday, you have to do this, you have to do this, once you have that kind of thing added, then there's been that... Uh, generally speaking, it isn't going to be an impact on salvation, but there is a point at which sometimes it does. 
if it goes far enough. Again, when it becomes a works thing, you've got to do this, this, or that. Whenever there's a, 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 a law attached to me getting saved, and that was the problem in the New Testament church, uh, because the, it went to the Jews, they basically said, okay, Gentile, you're getting saved, but you're only saved if you are circumcised. And uh, you can believe in Jesus, but if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. So that was a battle Paul fought constantly uh, with them saying, you're saved by faith plus. Now, we believe that if you're genuinely saved, there's going to be things change, but it's after the fact, not before the fact. But once you attach any requirement on to being uh, a child of God, then you're, you're going into the... And it's a constant. We don't like the idea of, of a free gift. We like to say, I did it. Now, there's a point at which, you know, we're responsible and we're obedient, but I'm not going to get to heaven because I was a certain kind of person. There's one that uh, I was listening or uh, reading this guy uh, as a, a blog, and uh, over and over again, you know, I believe most of the stuff he said, but then he started saying, um, you only need to get, uh, you only need to ask forgiveness once. And that's when you're saved, and then never again. You shouldn't ask Yeah, that's a fairly common one. I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, <clears throat> who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they, have relate, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal, the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? <clears throat> Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. So when you hear that today... Uh, the Lord said to me, God spoke to me, said this, and then communicate information that tends to be authoritative. Uh, hit him with a rock. <laughs> I'm against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, related to them and led my people astray by their falsehood and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or to command them, nor did they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Read the Bible every day and study it, and you'll know. If you read it in volume, you'll have that sense inside of you, that uh, discord that will happen. You won't sometimes know exactly, but there'll be that little, uh, something's not quite right. If you read it every day, and know it and study it. <clears throat>